0: It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA the ringer is committed to responsible gaming please visit the ringer.com rg to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details must be 21 plus in president select states gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit the ringer.com rg
1: this episode is brought to you by hotels.com if you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids games it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel we're all over the place sometimes
0: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, and the Red Sox have actually done it. Heim Bloom is no longer running the Red Sox organization. He is done. The Red Sox held a press conference on Thursday to make the announcement. We had a whole Patriots pod planned, but Heim Bloom, right now, the biggest news in town that he has been given his walking papers will no longer be running the Red Sox organization. So more on that in just a second. It is week two, as we mentioned. My buddy John Justremski joined me. From New York, New York, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. JJ, of course, also a lifelong Miami Dolphins fan. So we got into the AFC East and we also got into the Miami Dolphins and the Pats game coming up on Sunday. A full preview of that coming up in a little bit. But where we want to start is with Heim Bloom no longer running this Red Sox organization and i just watched the sam kennedy press conference of course it was him doing it it wasn't the real owners of the team but nonetheless i know he has a stake in i know he's part of ownership and all that different type of stuff but it was sam kennedy holding the press conference not surprising i thought a few months ago heim bloom was going to be safe but i really think a couple of things cemented heim bloom being gone over the past i'd say month and a half two months so the first one was mookie betts came in here And he embarrassed the Red Sox organization, flat out embarrassed the Red Sox organization. And you know what else he did? He fired up the fan base because really the Red Sox were starting to become irrelevant at that particular point in time. Mookie Betts, by his individual greatness, by how good of a baseball player he is, he pissed off the fans. Not Mookie himself. He made us mad at Heimblum and the Red Sox ownership group, right? And I'm not going through the whole contract thing again, but he came in here And he had seven hits in three games. He embarrassed the Red Sox organization. Mookie could easily win MVP again. And he's already won a World Series since leaving this team. He's won Gold Gloves since winning this team. Since leaving this team, he's playing all different positions. Mookie bets since leaving the Red Sox organization, 21 and a half wins above replacement from Fangraphs. That's third in Major League Baseball during that stretch. The three players the Red Sox got back, Alex Verdugo, Jeter Downs, and Connor Wong. If you look at their aggregate, so 7.5 for Verdugo, 1.4 for Wong, downs minus 0.3, of course, no longer with the organization. So that's 8.6 wins above replacement. So in aggregate, the gap between Mookie and the players you got back, 12.9 fangraphs win above replacement. Rafael Devers, during that three-year stretch, or more than three-year stretch now, 12.6 wins above replacement. So the gap between the value you traded away in Mookie, And what you got in return was larger than Rafael Devers' value, who's made a couple of all-star teams during that stretch and just got a $300 million contract. And we saw how entertaining Mookie Betts was as a player. And what the ownership group, I would assume, realized at that particular point in time, man, we fucked this up and we got nothing essentially in return. Verdugo's a fine player. He's gone. You're not signing that guy. He has issues in terms of his motivation. And he had bad... The, day, the other day against the Yankees, I'm not saying it's one at bat, but come on, bases loaded after Clay Holmes had walked three guys. You're swinging at a, the first pitch when he can't throw a strike. You ground into a double play when Devers and Turner are coming up behind you. I give him credit. He improved this year defensively. He cannot hit lefties. He's not a self-starter. And this is the main piece you got back. Connor Wong's a fine player, but Connor Wong for Mookie Betts, it's a horrendous trade. So it's a catastrophic move that this organization made. And it was finally right in front of your face in that series against the Dodgers. That's one thing that I think led to this in terms of it felt like it was trending in this direction based on sort of the position the team was in. But that Mookie thing, I don't know how you don't feel like an idiot if you're John Henry, if you're Warner, if you're Sam Kennedy, if you're anybody involved, especially high in bloom. You got to feel like an idiot watching that thing. Right. And then the other thing that I thought really embarrassed the Red Sox organization was the bear claw game. Where, and we talked about it at the time, you're still at least technically battling to try to get into the postseason. You take a 4-3 lead against the Astros in the bottom of the fifth inning. Chris Sale can't go deep into that game, of course. And then what happens? Bear Claw comes in, an indie ball pitcher, because all your other relievers, with the exception of your high leverage guys, Ken Lee Jansen and Chris Martin, none of them were available because of all the bullpen games and all this stuff you've had to do over the course of the season. The only other guy you had that was available possibly is Joe Vera. He's not good either. So it was Bearclaw or another reliever that wasn't good. And he gets absolutely clobbered because Bloom did not put enough pitching on this team. They didn't do anything at the trading deadline. More on that in a second. But those two things, I think, really led to this, right, where it heightened it, where Yeah, maybe he was going to be gone at the end of the season, but having that embarrassment when you don't have enough pitching and you're the Boston Red Sox in a game where you're technically trying to still get into the postseason and then your former player that could have been the biggest star in this town. No disrespect to Jason Tatum or anything along those lines, but Mookie Betts is a better baseball player than Jason Tatum is a basketball player. He's clearly better than anybody on the Red Sox. And at this particular point in time, he's better than David Pasternak on the Bruins. He could have been the biggest star in town. He's a huge star in L.A. And you got nothing back from him. he came back to your building and made you pay for it. It just it was a horrible look for the organization. And really, the fan base was sick and tired of some of the decisions that Heimblum had been making. If you look at the overarching numbers, and we've alluded to some of these in the past. And this is the issue. Heimblum, and we'll get into this, he has rebuilt the farm system. He is really good at that. There's no doubt about that. OK, I'm not taking that away from me. He deserves a ton of credit for that. But the overarching numbers, just because you're rebuilding the farm system doesn't mean your major league team has to suck and suck in particular categories. If you look at it in the Bloom era, which stretches from 2020 to this season, pitching 459 ERA, 24th, 139 whip, 26th, 258 opponents batting average, 27th. 651 home runs, 22nd, 39.7% hard hit rate, 25th, that's balls off the bat, 95 plus, plus. 317 meltdowns, 25th. Okay, then you look at the defense, and this is really where I think if you are an owner of this team, and as a fan, it was embarrassing to watch this. During the Heimblum era, minus 108 outs above average, that is baseball savants metric, 30th in baseball. They have been the worst defensive team in Major League Baseball since Heinblum has taken over this organization. 335 errors. That is 30th in Major League Baseball. It's just embarrassing. And there's no reason that you have to be this embarrassing defensively. It's like, oh, like the people that defend Heinblum would say, oh, well, that wasn't his job. His job was to build up the form system. Well, he can also put together a competent Major League team. You can do both those things at the same time. And he just, there's examples, and we'll go through some of them where he just hasn't valued defense. Okay. So, and remember, the one year that they actually make a run, it's 2021. And even that season, they were shorthanded. <laughs> remember, they clinch a playoff spot the final day of the season, the Nick Pavetta walk off curveball against Juan Soto. Nick Pavetta's a starting pitcher. You were already bringing guys out of your rotation to pitch in the bullpen at the end of the regular season because you didn't have enough in your bullpen, right? Flat out embarrassing. Okay, and then you start to look at just some of the incompetence that started really in 2022 about putting a big league club together. So I didn't mind letting Hunter Renfro go. I was never the biggest Hunter Renfro fan, but you started the season with Jackie Bradley Jr. as one of your top three outfielders, a guy that eventually you would DFA. He ended up going to the Blue Jays, but... I was fine with it. It's like, oh, you want to get some prospects for Renfro? Cool. I'm good with that. I didn't think Hunter Renfro would be a long-term part of this organization. I thought he was completely overrated defensively. And yes, he hit home runs. That's the thing that he did. So I thought, okay, at least you're going to replace Hunter Renfro with a real outfielder instead of a fourth outfielder, which Jackie Bradley Jr. was. And the Red Sox didn't do that. So that's where, like in a vacuum, I thought the Renfro move was fine, but you didn't actually replace him with a competent everyday player. And what did the Red Sox do in 2022? Their outfielders hit 44 home runs. That was 28th in Major League Baseball. <laughs> the one thing that Hunter Renfro did is hit home runs. You didn't replace that and said you had Jackie Bradley Jr. starting the season. Okay, then they completely fucked up Garrett Whitlock, right? We've gone back and forth between starter, reliever, starter, reliever. And he was the best reliever, one of the best relievers, the best reliever for the Red Sox in 2021. One of the best relievers by the numbers. In Major League Baseball in 2021, since then, he's been essentially a negative for this team, especially this year. And you look at it, he just, he is a relief pitcher. So have him be a relief pitcher instead of being a starter because he has not been great as a starter. And that's been an issue. They've screwed up Garrett Whitlock where all these injuries keep happening. I can't imagine that it's not because he keeps switching roles. And as a starter, he's proven he can't stay healthy. And this situation keeps happening where they roll him out as a starter. So that's been another thing. They had to bring up a bunch of their young guys early because they didn't have enough depth in terms of the pitching staff in 2022 because all these guys were getting injured in the rotation. Okay, then you go back to he extended Matt Barnes in 2021. We all knew that Matt Barnes was soft, okay? And Matt Barnes was a head case. After he extended Matt Barnes in 2021, the rest of the season, 6'11 ERA, 285th out of 319 relievers. 164 whip, 287, 287th out of 319 relievers, a 268 opponent's batting average, 256th out of 319 relievers. <laughs> so after he gives him the extension, this guy is just a complete liability to the point where in the postseason that year, he's not even on the roster for one of the series because that's how bad Matt Barnes was after you gave him the extension. Then the guy they bring in in 2022 to try to take on a high leverage role in this Red Sox bullpen is Jake Diekmann. Jake Deekman a 17.5% walk rate that season, which was 168th out of 168 relievers. So dead last prior to the trading deadline when they sent him to Chicago. Now it appears they fixed him in Tampa, but the point being when he was here, the guy sucked. He walked the ballpark. The perception of him coming into that year was, oh, this guy walks a ton of guys, but you know what? Bloom loves this stuff. He's got an unbelievable slider. Guess what happened? The guy walked everybody that fucking hit against him. The guy was horrendous. All right, then there's Corey Kluber this year. I'm just going through the laundry list of issues for this organization under Bloom. Corey Kluber, you don't re-sign Nate Now, and I've talked about this multiple times, Nate Aldi was offered a three-year contract by the Red Sox. Nate Aldi didn't take the three-year contract the Red Sox offered him. He basically took the same amount of money from the Texas Rangers on a two-year deal. But the problem was... Last season, Nate Evaldi was talking about the fact that the Red Sox never came to him in terms of anything with a contract or anything along those lines. So maybe you get him at a decent deal if you go to him then. But the point being, okay, Nate's gone. Waka's gone. You sign Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber was at least supposed to eat up innings for this team. Couldn't do that. So this was a massive flop, which really screwed everything up for this starting rotation, right? I mean, this is one of like the sale injury, of course, was a major issue. But this is another big issue. His nine starts that he made this season. And remember, he was the opening day starter for the Boston Red Sox, Corey Kluber, at the age of like 75. But nonetheless, Corey Kluber's nine starts, a 626 ERA, 93rd of 100 starters with a minimum of 41 innings during that stretch, 238 home runs per nine innings, 99th out of those 100 starters. So by the numbers, he was arguably the worst starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. That's the guy that you signed in the offseason. And as we mentioned, one of the biggest issues for this Red Sox team all season long, they got nothing out of their starting rotation. That's one of the reasons right there. And then we go to something I pointed out, that the defense has been the worst in Major League Baseball. Bloom apparently doesn't care about defense. It's been one, the worst since Bloom took over. And just think about some of the examples of, it, this was predictable, right? Last year, Dahlback was starting the season as your first baseman after the nice run he had at the end of 2021. And the other guy you had was Travis Shaw. Travis Shaw started the season 0 for 19. You may forget about that. It looked like he was swinging a bat underwater when he actually got his opportunities to hit for this team. But nonetheless, the dollback thing failed. But just at defensively, if you look at the situation, what was their answer after they get rid of Shaw? Let's try Franchi at first. Franchi is not a first baseman. It's like they didn't respect the position. I mean, a couple of years ago. They try Christian Arroyo there. He does a split and he gets injured. But look at this. In 2022, Dollback minus six defensive runs saved at first base in just 635 innings. Franchi, and I felt bad for him. The guy was trying to go over to second base to feel the ball because he didn't know how to play first base. Minus four defensive runs saved in 362 innings. The Red Sox that season because of... This attitude that they could just put anybody at first. They finished with minus 16 defensive runs saved at first base that season. Dead last in Major League Baseball. In fact, the next closest, the Texas Rangers were at minus eight defensive runs saved. The difference between the Red Sox and the Texas Rangers was the same difference between the Texas Rangers, who were 29th in defensive runs saved, and the Giants at 14th. That's how much worse the Red Sox were than anybody else defensively at first base that season. And this whole idea, yeah, we're building up the farm, but you can also, like, that's inexcusable. That type of shit is inexcusable. What's also inexcusable is Kike starting the year as your everyday shortstop. 14 errors. He still has the fourth most errors at shortstop in his 537 innings. He still is fourth in Major League Baseball. He hasn't played shortstop in months. He's still fourth in errors. And this whole thing is, well, they had Trevor Story. Yes, but they knew before the season that Trevor Story was injured and he wasn't starting the season as your shortstop. They said, yeah, we'll roll with Kike. It was in his head. Guy could, he had the yips, couldn't throw the ball to first base. I mean, it was just a complete, complete disaster. At points this season, we said on this pod, the Yu Chang injury is killing the Red Sox. Think about that. A guy that when Story came back, they said, yeah, we're good with Yu Chang. That's how important he was. A guy that really isn't a good major league baseball player. He's just a competent fielder, that's all you needed. Kike Hernandez couldn't provide you that and actually Yu Chang really hurt this team when he was out. And then you just you go through a bunch of things. Last year's deadline, didn't trade JD or Nate. And with Bogart's and Nate leaving in free agency, the Red Sox got pick 133 and 134 instead of 70 and 71. The Red Sox paid the tax for a last place team. Why? I never had an issue with the Christian Vasquez trade. I said, hey, you want to p- get some prospects for Vasquez? I've always thought that Vasquez was incredibly overrated. He doesn't call a good game. I was fine with trading Vasquez and Abreu I like. And Veldes. I mean, he can hit right-handed pitching. I mean, The guy's a butcher in the field, but that was fine. I thought that was a good piece of business for where you were at organizationally at the deadline. But why hold on to JD and Nate, especially considering the fact that you knew there was a chance that Pretty good chance that both those guys were leaving anyway because they were free agents. So why wouldn't you do something to get more into the farm system and at the very least get under the CBT? Why are you paying the tax for a last place team? That's something I'm sure that ownership was upset about. That's just, that is a mind-numbing decision by High and Bloom to pay the tax for a last place team. And then you start to think about some of the other moves that James Paxton signing. He gave you 96 innings. And look, he, he had a nice stretch this year. We talked about it on the pod. But he gave you 96 innings. Congratulations. And he's dealing with an injury as we speak right now. So pitching, defense, all these decisions that Bloom has made, what he proved is he cannot put a major league team together. Now, maybe eventually down the road, I can't imagine anybody would give him a chance soon. But maybe down the road, he'll learn from this and he'll learn how to put a big league club together. But what it felt like to me is his prerogative was, hey, my job is fixing the farm system and fis- fixing that part of the organization. And it was almost like the Major League Club was just something happening for him, right? Where all his emphasis was on rebuilding and retooling, and the Major League Club was to the side. And you give him credit, right, for what he was able to do with the farm system, but the problem was it's he was nonchalant with the Major League thing. And what I believe happened here with Hein Bloom is he has, in the past, met a guy that is putting together farm systems, Right when he was with Tampa. So you're not really concerned about results when you do that. And unfortunately, I think that's sort of what happened to him when he got to the Red Sox. It's like, oh, I need to have results with the big league club. And he never really factored that in, right? Where now it's three out of four years. You're not going to be playing postseason baseball. And the ownership group is going to be embarrassed. I mean, you watch that game on Tuesday there's nobody there, and you're playing the New York Yankees. That is embarrassing right now, and it's embarrassing for the Yankees too. But the Red Sox and the Yankees are playing a series that means nothing. They're playing for last place in the American League East. So what Bloom is, he's really good at building a farm system. And that's where I think, in a weird way, whoever gets it, this is an outstanding job. Whoever gets it, Baseball America in their... Latest rankings has the Red Sox ranked fifth in Major League Baseball as it pertains to their farm system. They are loaded. Roman Anthony is a stud. Marcelo Meyer, although shut down, is a stud. We've seen Rafaela lately, stud. Tristan Casas is rookie season. He's had a better year than Rafael Devers, stud. The Red Sox are loaded in terms of their farm system. Here's the problem: they're not loaded as it pertains to their starting pitching. They're going to need somebody to go out there and sign a starting pitcher. Or, two, does anybody want Hein Bloom doing that based on what we've seen and the signings he's made and how he's handled the big club? He is not equipped to do that. You need somebody that is competent and capable of doing that. So, Hein Bloom, it's almost like the Red Sox, in some sense, used him, right? Now they're back to where they were prior to the Mookie, Benintendi, Jackie Bradley Jr. era, where their farm system's good. Like, they're in the Xander Bogarts, I should mention, their farm system's really good. The next guy is going to have to come in and fix the big league club. And you know what you do? You flex your financial muscles as the Red Sox and you go out there and you buy good starting pitching and you go from there. So this is a good day for the Red Sox organization because it tells you that they acknowledge finally how bad of a product you were putting on the field, how embarrassing your defense has been, how incompetent the guy running the organization has been at actually getting starting pitching, actually getting relievers. It has been an absolute dumpster fire to watch this team play every day. It's embarrassing to watch how they cannot make routine plays and how many players they have on this team that are just not good defensive players and not even getting into the whole PR thing. Like, and look, Bogarts, in the long run, they'll be right for letting him go. But just the way they handled that two years ago, it's offering him one extra year, like either don't offer him something or offer him an actual deal. Like it just made no sense the way they handled the whole Xander situation where the guy's basically crying. It felt like at the end of spring training, I mean, he was emotional. It's just Heinblum never really understood how to handle the human side of this. He never understood how to handle the major league side of this. He was super interested in his farm system and it felt like nothing else. So it's a good day for the Red Sox. And I think whoever they get in here next and we'll see, we're going to have these conversations over the next few weeks. Sam Kennedy did rule out Theo Epstein, which is like, I don't know why you would do that. If it's me, I give that guy a piece of ownership and say, hey, what do you want? Pay him whatever he possibly can. Theo's the best of both worlds, right? He'll build up a farm system. He'll build up the major league team. Like I mean, that would be awesome. Obviously, it appears like they, they have no interest in doing that. I don't know why. But nonetheless, we'll see who it is. But whoever it is, they're gonna to have to thank Hein Bloom. Like as much as I criticize Hein Bloom, Hein Bloom just set you up for years to come with sustained success. Like his whole thing was, we want a sustainable winner. The problem was he was so bad at putting a major league club together. He's not even gonna to get to experience it, and it's on you, man. It's on you because if you put together a competent major league team, just a team that was fighting right now, a team that was feisty and maybe just missed out on the wild card situation, you'd still have your job. But you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You didn't pay enough attention to the major league team. Nobody is to blame in this situation, but Heimblum. Bottom line, no way around it. And you know what? I'm sure the ownership group started to look at it and say, hey, nobody's coming to our games in September. We are irrelevant. And we had one of the best players in the sport. He isn't here anymore. And the ownership deserves a lot of criticism for that as well. But they screwed this whole thing up. And now, hey, the one good thing you can say about the Heimblum era, this team is built to win going forward. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, I do want to get into the AFC East. Is there now an opportunity for the Patriots in the division? As crazy as that seems, it does kind of feel like the Patriots are in a good spot right now. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. And I'm looking at a couple of Patriots futures. I like them to go over eight and a half wins. You can get that at good value at plus 220. And remember, this Patriots team won eight games last year, and they had two losses that come to mind. The Raiders game where Jacoby Myers threw it away literally to Chandler Jones in that Bengals game, the Patriots were going in to win that one. And unfortunately, Ramondre Stevenson fumbled. So I love that. Plus 220 for the Patriots to win over eight and a half games. I also like the Patriots to make the playoffs at plus 250. It's very good value there. Now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use and you can be on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com Pike and kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21+ and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire 7 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. NFL Sunday Ticket offer ends on September 18, 2023. No refunds. Terms and embargo apply. $100 off NFL Sunday Ticket, not YouTube TV. YouTube TV base plan required to watch YouTube TV. Redemption requires a Google account and current form of payment, commercial use excluded. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I did not imagine I'd be talking baseball today, but with Heimblum getting fired, obviously that is the biggest story in town right now. But I do want to get into the AFC East and how wild it was after week one and how the Patriots really have an opportunity here. Prior to the season, we were talking about essentially this division being the toughest in the NFL. And after just one week, that's not the case anymore, right? So if you look at the Bills, right, they just lost a game that Aaron Rodgers essentially didn't play in, right? He played four snaps in. And their quarterback, Josh Allen, has real turnover issues. We went over some of the inexcusable interceptions he threw in that Monday night game the other day with Ted Johnson. And the fumble was just irresponsible. He botched the snap and then he fumbles after that. But let's just look at this. The last season, or I should say last season, Josh Allen had 29 turnover-worthy plays. That's what Pro Football Focus does. They chart that. That was the most in the league. So basically that means, like, if an interception was dropped, that's a turnover-worthy play, just to give you an idea. They account for all those bad plays, not just raw interceptions, or raw fumbles. So he's reckless with the football. If you go back to 2021, he had the third most turnover-worthy plays. So in 2022, just if you look at the raw turnover numbers, 19, five lost fumbles and 14 interceptions. 2021, that number was at 18. That was the fifth most in the NFL. So Josh Allen has been turning the ball over for years. He harnessed it a bit in 2020, but this is who he is as a player. Now, that also comes with big explosive plays. But as this thing continues to go on for the Bills, they're just not as good as they've been in previous years. And ordinarily they can overcome some of those bad plays from Josh Allen. I'm not so sure they can anymore. And what we found out on Monday night, they couldn't in that specific game against a good Jets defense, which in this division, the Patriots have a really good defense too, right? He wants to play hero ball. This is a guy that's trying to jump over defenders when he's not even close to the first down marker. So Josh Allen had seven games with at least two turnovers since the start of 2022. That's tied for the most in the league. So if you look at it, 19 games he's played since the start of 2022, 16 in the regular season last year, two playoff games, and of course the one this year. So 36.8% of his games, he's had at least two turnovers. It's ridiculous. Now, a lot of times it doesn't burn the Bills, but this team is not the same Bills team we've seen in previous years. And then there's the other side of the ball for the Bills. Remember, they've had one of the best defenses in the NFL over this three-year window when they've been a real true contender. If you look at it, Aaron Rodgers, as we mentioned, he goes down on the fourth snap of the game. The Bills know that the Jets want to run the football because the quarterback is Zach Wilson. They don't want Zach Wilson to try to win the game. The Jets don't, right? So the Bills know they're going to try to run on them. The Jets ran for 172 yards, 6.1 yards per attempt. And yes, there were some big runs in there. Brees Hall was outstanding. But the point is, (laughs) you know what's coming. And if you look at it, the Bills last season, they were 16th in success rate against the run. In week one, the Bills were 28th in success rate against the run. So this has been trending in that direction. So that once great defense, it's getting older and it's not nearly as talented. And I get it, they're going to get Vaughn Miller back, but that's not exactly going to make you a great team against the run or anything along those lines. So the quarterback's playing hero ball. The defense can't stop the run. And the whole situation is weird where Leslie Frazier just left the team and now Sean McDermott is the defensive play caller, if you will. And McDermott is coaching like he's a defensive coordinator, right? You look at fourth and two at the Jets' 22-yard line early on in this game. The Bills settled for a field goal on their second drive of the game. Like, you go ahead, you know that they have Zach Wilson at quarterback, right? So you get a touchdown there, you're in really good position, and you kick a field goal when you just gave your quarterback $258 million, what, before last offseason, or before last season, I should say. So they're going to have issues with the coach, and the quarterback, the Bills right now, they just don't look like that dominant team that they've looked like over the past three years. We saw it start last year. They have the weird Stefan Diggs situation as well, but they're going to have trouble against the run all season long, and Josh Allen is going to play hero ball. That's who he is as a quarterback, but it feels like they don't have the team to overcome all that like they have in years past. Okay, Then we look at the Jets. And we'll get J.J.'s take on this when he comes on. But they plan on sticking with Zach Wilson, right? So the Jets, who looked like one of the most talented teams in the NFL, they lose a four-time MVP, right? And if you look at Zach Wilson in four games against the Patriots, two touchdowns, seven interceptions, count them, seven interceptions. He is 54 of 106, 50.9%. He has a passer rating of 506 that's almost impossible this guy is atrocious you go back to the 2022 season his completion percentage 54.5 percent 41st of 41 qualifiers his passer rating 72.8 41st of 41 qualifiers Worst in completion percentage last in passer rating as well how about against pressure last season his completion percentage and this is via pro football focus Against pressure, when he was pressured, he completed 30.1% of his passes. That's almost, it looks made up, but that's where he was at last in the NFL. His passer rating against pressure last year, 18.6. 18.6. No other quarterback was south of 33. He was at 18.6. And they are sticking with this guy. At least for the moment, they're sticking with a guy by the name of Zach Wilson, who we've seen play. Robert Sala this week. I do want to make it very clear. Zach's our quarterback. We got a lot of faith in Zach. We're really excited about this opportunity. We're rolling with Zach and excited for him in this opportunity that he's going to start. (laughs) So this is the worst thing the Jets could do as an organization. You're screwed without Rodgers anyway. But Salah's out here saying Zach's our quarterback. You just told the entire NFL and your team this past offseason that Zach's not good enough to be your quarterback. Because even if you didn't land Rodgers... They would have been trying to get the Jimmy Garoppolo's, the Derek Carr's. Those guys are a large drop off from Rodgers. So the point being, Zach Wilson was going to be their starter, or I should say, Zach Wilson was never going to be their starter, even if they didn't land Aaron Rodgers. It wasn't like Aaron Rodgers or Bus. It was like, OK, if it's not Rodgers, it could be Carr. It could be Garoppolo, right? They were going to be shopping for a new quarterback anyway. The defensive players last year were fed up with Zach Wilson. The coaching staff was fed up with Zach Wilson. The front office was fed up with Zach Wilson. So this is going to fall apart because you have one of the best three to four defenses in the league. I'd put them in the conversation with the Cowboys, the Niners, and I would throw the Patriots in the conversation, especially after what we saw against the Eagles. And I guess you throw the Eagles in there like the top five defenses in the league. So the Bills are vulnerable. They, Or I should say, the Bills, I should say, we know are vulnerable. They can't defend the run. The Jets lost their four-time MVP. And then there's the Dolphins, who you play on Sunday, right? So the Dolphins, keeping with this division theme, they look like the best team in the AFC last week. That offense is stupid, and we'll get into that in greater detail. But as we know, they're a Tua injury away. That just is the reality of Tua at this point in his career. And the other thing is, the defense, especially with the Jalen Ramsey injury, There's some concerns there, right? And they brought in Vic Fangio. He's great at what he does. But just look at last week. The Chargers ran for 234 yards. The worst defense against the run last year was the Texans. They gave up 170 a game. So Miami was 64 yards worse than the 32nd ranked defense last year against the run. The Chargers also ran for 5.9 yards per carry. Ironically, the Chargers were the worst team against the run in terms of yards per attempt last year at 5.4. So half a yard worse per attempt than the 32nd ranked defense last season were the Dolphins on Sunday. The success rate running the ball against the Dolphins, 66.7% for the Chargers on Sunday. So that means essentially giving up, if you're a success rate to go back to what that means, picking up 40% of the yards to go on first down. 60% of the yards to go on second down and picking up a first down in either third or fourth down. 66.7% is a ridiculous number. The worst team in success rate against the run last year, the Falcons at 46.6%. So we're talking about being 20 percentage points worse than the league's 32nd ranked defense last season. And you can say, well, hey, it was just one game. I acknowledge all that, but I think it's going to be difficult to transition. Vic Fangio, definitely a great hire, and we talked about that throughout the summer. But it's difficult going from a Brian Flores defense, because that's what they tried to carry over, right? That's so blitz heavy to a team or to a scheme that's totally different with Vic Fangio. I think it's going to take a while for this team to get used to that scheme. And maybe by week 10 and when they get Jalen Ramsey back eventually, they look better. But I don't think this defense is going to be good for a large portion of the season. So, and look, going back to last year, this is a bad defense. The Dolphins' defense last season, 24th in EPA per play, 22nd in scoring percentage against. Teams scored on 37.5% of their drives. And they were 27th in passer rating against at 95.3. So, yes, they have Vic Fangio, but that's going to be a transition. But the defense looked horrible on Sunday with Vic Fangio, and it looked horrible all last season. So we know they're going to score a ton of points, right? But if you can keep that offense somewhat in control, you can certainly expose that defense. And with the team that they're a two-injury away, their defense is an issue. So there are issues with all these teams in the division. Now, I want to be clear. I really like the Dolphins. That team is insane on offense, but they even have their flaws that were on display in Week 1. I mean, they were the worst rush defense in the NFL. So this is not me saying the Patriots are without their flaws they were picked to finish fourth in the division but my point is coming into the season we looked at this as holy crap unreal right we talked about at the beginning of the pod unbelievable stack division we had this perception hey the bills are the bills the jets with rogers they were a qb away and the dolphins are going to be a wagon of a team right and now only one of those things appears to be true, right? The Dolphins look like a wagon, but the rest of the stuff, the Jets don't have Aaron Rodgers. And I'm not so sure the Bills are the Bills. And even the Dolphins, as we mentioned, they have their issues. So the Patriots have a massive opportunity on Sunday to change the narrative. If they can beat this Dolphins team based on what we've seen in the division, aren't we looking at the Patriots differently? They go from, hey, they looked frisky to... Hey, this is a play this is a playoff team. They beat the Dolphins. You're like, "Oh, maybe this is a playoff team." You play the Jets in week 3. They don't have Aaron Rodgers. So, week 1, despite the loss being painful, the Patriots are in a good spot. And I can't wait until Sunday to find out if what we saw against the Eagles carries over to the Dolphins. This would be by far the biggest one of the Mac Jones era. We're like, right now, what's the biggest one of the Mac Jones era? When he threw three times in the windstorm, they have not beaten good teams with Mac Jones. And this is not meant to be an indictment on Mac. I'm just pointing it out that this could be their opportunity to prove, hey, 2023, we are for real. Okay, a couple of other things I want to get to in terms of Patriots-related thoughts. Mac could have a big night on Sunday. So piggybacking off what I said about the Dolphins' defense, if you look at Justin Herbert last week, this is via Pro Football Focus. He was kept clean on 27 of his dropbacks, so 64.3%. That's a pretty high number. Of those dropbacks, he was 19 of 24, so he completed 79.2% of his passes. And as we mentioned with Ted Johnson on Tuesday, Mac was really good when he was kept clean in that game on Sunday against the Eagles. A 105 rating, which was eighth, 239 yards when he was kept clean, fourth most in the NFL. Herbert was blitzed at the 16th highest rate in Week 1. So the Dolphins are not going to blitz like they did last year with Vic Fangio. If you go to Fangio, the 2021 Broncos, they were 15th in blitz rate. In 2020, the Broncos were 18th in blitz rate. That's just not what he wants to do. This defense, this scheme, is built to stop explosive plays. That's what everyone across the league has copied over the past couple of years, these Vic Fangio disciples. Justin Herbert in that game threw into tight windows just 12.1% of the time. That means the closest defender is within a yard, okay? If you go back to the 2022 season, only five qualified quarterbacks were south of 12.1% in terms of close tar- in close window throws, right? Tight window throws, I should say. So what does that mean? Well, against a Vic Fangio defense, you have to be willing to make a profit, right? Make easy throws because they'll be there. That's what they're trying to make you to do is... If you're not going to take the easy throws, they're going to try to turn you over. That's what the point of this defense is, right? They're daring you, hey, can you be patient? Can you just methodically go down the field rather than getting those big explosive plays? They're not giving you those. But you can go methodically down the field against a Vic Fangio defense, especially this one where the personnel is not great. So going forward, what does this mean? Can Mac make the easy throws? Mac Jones, this is one of his strengths, right? He will take what the defense gives him. When Mac gets into trouble, it's when he forces it, right? He will do what the dif- what the defense dictates, right? Some quarterbacks don't have that patience. And I'm not saying this is a good thing or a, or a bad thing long term, but for this matchup in particular, this is actually a good thing for Mac Jones. Herbert in that game, six completions behind the line of scrimmage, eight more completions within five yards. So 14 of his 23 completions, over 60%, just under 61% of his throws, didn't even travel five yards. Mac last week, 185 yards after the catch, the most in the NFL by 23 yards. Mac last week averaged 3.6 average completed air yards. If you go back to the last season, no player was under four. So, look, you don't want to build an offense without explosive plays, right? Like, it's very difficult to be a great offense that way. But for this specific matchup, Mac is uniquely equipped to be able to do this against this type of defense. He will take what the defense gives him. When he had trouble last year, it's because he didn't have outlets, right? Uh, when he was pressured, he didn't have those easy opportunities. As we saw on Sunday, he did this year. So yes, Vic Fangio's a genius. He could easily change his game plan and dare the Patriots receivers to beat them. But I would also look at the fact that the Patriots were clearly game planning around that Eagles defensive line. So they didn't have a play action game, right? Just eight attempts out at of play action where Mac completed seven of the eight. You could see a lot more of that this week. The defense that's gonna dare you to run and take the short passing game, they were horrible against the run. That's what they they forced the Chargers to run and they completely ran all over them. You could catch them in this game in terms of the play action pass game as well. And if you look at it last year, Mac Jones against the Minnesota Vikings, Ed Donatel, who was, of course, fired, but he was their defensive coordinator in Minnesota last year. That's a Vic Fangio style defense. He's a Vic Fangio disciple. Mac Jones in that game was 28 of 39. He completed 71.8% of his passes, two touchdowns, no interceptions. So, really good numbers just to back it up, where I do feel that Mac could have a big game against this style of defense. Okay. That brings me to this Juju Smith Schuster. My buddy Andrew Callahan, I'll be on his pod. Later on today, if you're listening on Thursday, if you're listening on Friday, check his pod out because I'll be on that. He dropped a bombshell this morning. Callahan, in his article, multiple team sources believe that Juju Smith-Schuster is not presently among the team's five most effective pass catchers. Five! Not among the team's five most effective pass catchers. This guy was signed to be the number one receiver. Sources, according to Callahan, his place in the offense has been complicated by a variety of factors. Health. Remember, he rep- got a his knee got repaired in the offseason. Callahan writes the repaired knee has diminished explosion after the run. This is what separated him from Jacoby Myers. Callahan points out in terms of why they decided Juju was a better op- option than Jacoby. He's not 100 percent right now. He also mentions that Parker is the ex guy, even though he didn't play last week. So that leaves Bourne, Douglas, Booty, Smith, Schuster for two of the other three receiving spots. If not Juju, right, then are they going to see more DeMario Douglas? That's what I'm looking at. Hey, if they feel this way about Juju, I want more DeMario Douglas on the field coming up on Sunday. And this is the most frustrating thing because it felt like this was a game where you could use Juju's unique skill set where his ability to run after the catch, right? I mean, you look at him last season, 6.1 yak per reception via Next Gen. That was seventh among receivers. 1.8 yak over expectation. That was fifth among receivers. Juju was a no-show last Sunday. Had the critical drop, just four receptions for 33 yards. He averaged 4.7 yards per target. Last year, he was at 9.2. That was 18th in the NFL. There were only three players south of 4.7 yards per target last year, all running backs, Barkley Harris and Rex Burkett, our old friend. So he went from being a highly efficient and productive player to basically a receiver at a running back rate. And we mentioned the act per reception, but the total yak last year for him was 463. That was 11th among just receivers. So this is part of the offense that you need. This is why he's here, as Callahan pointed out, over Jacoby Myers, the ability to run after the catch. So if we don't see a heavy dose of Juju Smith-Schuster, and based on Callahan's reporting, I don't expect it. This, and we kind of talked to Ted about this, this signing looks really bad because this would be the type of game where you would want Juju Smith-Schuster's skill set because you're going to have opportunities to make plays after the catch against this Vic Fangio defense. Okay, another Patriots-related thought. Expect a big game from Ramondre Stevenson. So Ramondre is coming off the stomach bug, of course. He did have the six receptions for 64 yards. I know one of them was a big catch. He had north of 60 yards in just two games last season in terms of receiving yards. So even in a game where I would say he didn't run the ball well, He still was a contributor in the receiving game, right? Including that, as we mentioned, the big one was 32 yards. But Ramondre in that game, just 12 carries for 25 yards. That's 2.1 yards per carry. Ramondre last season had just five games where he averaged less than four yards per carry in a single game. The next game, it's been hell for the defense. So week one last year, just 25 yards on 3.1 yards per carry against the Dolphins. The next week, he averaged 5.2 yards per carry in a win over the Steelers. The Bears' Monday night game, just 11 uh, 11 carries for 39 yards, 3.5 yards per carry. The next game against the Jets, 71 yards on the ground, and then 72 yards receiving, seven receptions for 72 yards. So over 70 both on the ground through the air, and the Pats won that game. Second Jets game, he averaged just 1.7 yards per carry. He did have 56 yards in the passing game. And look, we know the Jets stacked up the defense and dared the Patriots to throw. That was their game plan. But the next week, you look at the Patriots— he had seven rushes and he averaged 5.1 yards per carry, but he also had nine receptions for 76 yards. So part of the reason that he didn't have a high number in terms of the rushing yards, just 36 yards in the seven rushes, is because the game dictated it against Minnesota. But still, that's a good Romandre game where he goes for 76 yards in the air. The Arizona game, just 2.7 yards per carry. Next game against Vegas, 19 for 172, so 9.1 yards per carry and a touchdown. He w- And look, they lost that game, but it wasn't because of Ramondre. It was the Jacoby Myers game. The Bengals lost. He had the bad fumble and just 30 yards on 13 carries, 2.3 yards per carry. The next week against the Dolphins, 5.3 yards per carry. So Ramondre tends to respond after not having his typical great game. And even last week, at least he contributed in the receiving game. But going forward, I would expect a big Ramondre game based on what we know in terms of what happened last year. And if you look at it, the numbers were bad. Like, Ramondre in that game, minus 20 rush yards over expected in terms of next-gen charts that. Only six running backs were worse. Like, more yards were there for Ramondre. What we saw last year is he was the guy making the yards. Last week, more yards were there. He just didn't take advantage. He was at minus 1.81 rush yards over expected per attempt. That was the third worst in the NFL in week one. And if you go to last year, he's 118 yards over expected in totality, ninth in the NFL, 0.58 rush yards over expected per attempt, 10th in the NFL. So unequivocally, last year, he was creating his own offense. In week one, that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened where he didn't take advantage of some opportunities he had. And I would expect a huge bounce back. I really would. Okay. The other thing is, in terms of another Patriots-related thought, Jabril Peppers, is he just the Devin McCourty answer? So he was pro football focuses, 11th ranked safety in week one. I'm not saying it's the be-all end-all. But if you look at it, 58 snaps, 88%. Duggar played 66. That was 100%. And then you go to Phillips, he was down at 1726%. So they really favored Peppers over Phillips. That, is not, that was not the case last year. And he was also 13th among safeties in coverage grade. So we always thought it was going to be sort of a committee thing, replacing a guy like Devin McCourty. But maybe the answer to losing McCourty is just Jabril Peppers playing alongside Kyle Duggar. Now, we're going to find out a lot more on Sunday, right, based on the personnel that Miami has. But it's just something to monitor. We thought he'd have a big season. At least I did personally. I shouldn't say we. I thought he would have a big season. Let's see how he does so against those dynamic weapons in Miami. Let's see what the game plan is for Peppers in that specific game. But those are good weapons you just played in Philadelphia. And Jabril Peppers was really good in that game and graded out really well, as the grading would indicate. Okay, another Patriots-related thought. This is related to the Dolphins. Don't forget about Jalen Waddle. okay? So Tyreek Hill had the massive game on Sunday, and clearly he's the alpha there in Miami. He's arguably the best receiver in the game. You have Jefferson, but that speed Hill brings is just frightening. I heard Bill say with Solak on his podcast that he's the most dangerous weapon in the league, which I think is the best way to describe him, right? The speed is totally different than anyone else. Like you get a game plan for that speed right away. But remember Waddle last season, 18.1 yards per reception. That was first in the NFL among receivers, 521 yards after the catch. That was fifth among receivers. The only two players that were in the top five in both yards per reception and yak last season, Jalen Waddle and A.J. Brown. This guy is special, and if you add the rating to that one targeted, it was 122.6. He was the only player in the top five in yards per reception, yards after the catch, and rating. So I talked about keeping one of the two guys under control on the Tuesday pod and not letting both of them go off on Sunday like we saw with the Eagles where they kept Devontae Smith south of 50 yards. He averages 6.7 yards per reception. So no receiver last season was south of eight yards per reception. They had Devontae Smith at 6.7. That's really big, right? So, Smith, if you look at it, he was at 6.7 in that game, and yes, the touchdown a major impact, but they did a really good job of slowing him down. This matchup is going to be more difficult because of the speed of Jalen Waddle, right? Where Devontae Smith is a great player, But Waddle is the significantly more dangerous player. So as great as Tyree Kill is, and as much attention as Tyree Kill has gotten, deservingly so after going for north of 200, the Jalen Waddle situation scares me in this game coming up on Sunday because, I mean, he still had almost 80 yards in that game. Nobody's talking about him. I'm sure the Patriots are. But if you can limit Tyree Kill, right? Let's just say the hypothetical is they do a good job against Hill. Can you prevent Waddle from going off as well? That's what scares me about this Dolphins team is it's not just Tyree Kill. It's Tyreek Hill and it's Jalen Waddle, where they basically have that track team. Okay, the other thing Patriots-related is what's realistic for Hunter Henry this year? So Hunter Henry's coming off that 56-yard game with the touchdown, and the 56 yards, we mentioned this the other day, that was the most among tight ends in Week 1. Henry's career high is 652 receiving yards. He did that on 55 receptions. His most receptions at a season is 60. That was his final season with the Chargers. And if you go to last season, seven tight ends last season were over 700 yards. Kelsey, Hawkinson, Kittles, Andrews, Ingram, Goddard, and Fryermouth. Remember Goddard? He like barely, what, what was he doing in that game? They didn't throw him the ball at all. I know Ben Johnson, the coordinator for the Eagles, has taken some heat for that. But he, he was not even in the game, it felt like, against the Patriots. But if you go back to Henry's best season with the Pats, 2021 was obviously way better than 2022. He was tied for eighth among tight ends in yards per reception at 12.4 nine touchdowns that season, 633 yards, was 15th among tight ends. Targets, just 20th at 78. The catch percentage was 65.4%, which is good. So he averaged around 8.1 yards per target that season. He was at 9.3 yards per target on Sunday. So a big jump, right? More than a yard. So part of the reason is the average depth of target in that game on Sunday. It was 10.7 yards. Last year, he was at 7.7 in terms of the average depth of target. The year prior, he was at 9.7. So even going back to that year in 2021 when he had his career season, he's up a full yard in terms of in that game Sunday in terms of the average depth of target. His career high is 10.2 in terms of where he's targeted. And again, Sunday, that's 10.7. If you look at the yards before reception, he was at 10.2 on Sunday. His career high is 9.2. So I believe that based on. Where he's targeted, and I'm not saying one game dictates everything, but he had a really good camp. You can tell that Max still has that synergy and chemistry with him. I believe he's going to get over that 700-yard threshold, and I think we could be closer to 800 yards when we're talking about Henry this season. Because look at it. Who's their best two weapons right now? It's Kendrick Bourne and it's Hunter Henry. And having a tight end being that security blanket in the middle of the field is just huge for a quarterback. And part of that is Bill O'Brien, right? So if you go back to Gronk's historic season with Bill O'Brien as the play caller when Gronk had the 20 touchdowns, Gronk was at 14.8 yards per reception. The average depth of target was 12. Henry, we told you, was at 10.7 on Sunday. So Henry, I'm not comparing the players. Obviously, Gronk, in my opinion, is the best tight end of all time. Gronk was so good after the catch, right? 6.9 yak per reception that year, second among tight ends. Henry's not a yak guy at all. But if you look at the average depth of target... In that season, in 2011, it was at 12. Then you go to the next season, 10.8, 2013, 11.5, 2014, 10.2, 2015, 10.8. It wasn't until 2015 that Gronk was back over 12. And remember, after 2011, Bill O'Brien left the Patriots, take the head coaching job at Penn State. So it was a little bit different with Josh McDaniels for a couple of years. So the point being, Bill O'Brien was getting Gronk deeper targets. He was scheming that up, which you wanted for a guy like Gronk. But also, Bill O'Brien wants to use the tight ends. We saw that in week one. He wants Mac throwing the ball in the middle of the field where he can thrive, where you have an advantage. And if you look at Hunter Henry, we saw evidence in that game on Sunday that they're going to get him deeper targets right Than he had even in 2021 in the Josh McDaniels offense so you can see the difference in terms of the Josh McDaniels offense with the tight ends compared to the Bill O'Brien offense he wants to use a more of a weapon down the field a little bit more and I think we're going to see more of that from Hunter Henry that's why I believe that Hunter Henry is going to have the best season of his career all right a lot more coming up coming up next John Jastrzemski from New York New York Lifelong Dolphins fan. will get his take on this game. Does he think the Patriots can pull off the upset? What's he make of this Dolphins olf- offense? We'll get into all that with JJ in just a bit here.
1: There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class, leading passenger space, and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, you want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from New York, New York, part of the Ringer Podcast Network and now part of the Ringer Wise Guys show on FanDuel TV, which airs on Sundays at 11 a.m. And more importantly, lifelong Miami Dolphins fan, John Jastrzemski. JJ, what's going on, man? How was the first episode?
2: Uh, The first episode was a lot of fun. Uh, Money was made. Uh, The guys had a ton of fun. (laughs) We We tried to figure out how to do a live television show over Zoom. You know, I have some experience, Brian, doing that because in the COVID world, you know, my work over at s for about a year and a half, two years, I exclusively did television from my one-bedroom, now two-bedroom apartment. So I'm kind of well-versed. We're getting the guys on board. Uh, but <laughs> listen, we're going to have a ton of fun. So I appreciate that kind introduction. If you like winning money, if you like losing money. It's the best place to come. FanDuel TV, Sunday at 11 o'clock. And, you know, the only critique I have for you is like the amount of gigs that we're doing these days between New York, New York and the ring of Gambling and SOI, I'm all over the place. So for you, it, it takes someone special for me to go and do more work. And for Brian Barrett, You're one of those special people, bro.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that, man. I had a nice little four-game parlay over the weekend, too. Sunday. I actually hit one on Saturday, too. So I'm doing well right now, You know, I do have a bone
2: to pick with you right out of the gate, though. So congratulations Uh on that. I had an excellent week one. Excellent week one. Picking games against the spread. I would have had an off-the-charts week one if your beloved New England Patriots would have done (laughs) their job, no pun intended, and covered four and a half, even though the Eagles tried everything in their power to give you the game, bud. Well, blame
0: Belichick for that, okay. First of all, they if they convert the invoice a, to
2: Bill. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: First of all, if they converted a two-point conversion, they would have covered. And then secondarily, man, like some of the decisions, and I've been talking about this for the last two pods, as you can imagine, JJ, just some boneheaded decisions from Bill Belichick going for it on fourth and 17, fourth and three going for it when there's still ten minutes left in the ball game. You're down eight. Just some really bad in game decisions by bill he's been really good game planning still like he had an outstanding game plan for both the offense of the eagles and the defense of the eagles the patriots were well prepared they outplayed the eagles but they had some dumbass turnovers and some poor coaching i would say that's the reason they lost the game so jj we do have to get to the dolphins but i gotta ask you about the biggest story in new york right now because You look at this Aaron Rodgers situation, it felt like they were the biggest story in the NFL. They were hyped up, it felt like, more than any other team, and the Jet fan was dealing with the Darnolds, the Wilsons of the world, and I guess now Wilson again, but for so long they didn't have a quarterback. They truly were like, everybody says, hey, we're a quarterback away. They really were a quarterback away. Like We saw how good that team was on Monday Night Football. So how's the Jet fan doing right now? Are they convincing themselves that, hey, we still have a chance with Zach Wilson to be competitive and a win a playoff game, or are they just like, man, this is what being a Jet fan is all about. We had something, now it's gone.
2: So I think it's a mixed bag as far as the reaction is concerned, Brian. You know, there are some Jet fans in my life that are very much of the woe is me variety that had Super Bowl aspirations. And now knowing that Aaron Rodgers is going to be out for the year and that you're going to have to watch Zach Wilson throughout the course of this year. Yeah, those Super Bowl dreams go out the window, but there's a good quotient of Jeff fans. Joe Beningo comes on my podcast every week. He's the biggest Jeff fan. I know he's the voice of the New York Jeff fan. As far as I'm concerned, Joe thinks not only are the jets going to be competitive, not only are the jets going to be in a spot where they can go and make the postseason. Joe thinks they could still win the division. So I, I think he's a little insane, quite frankly, <laughs> for that particular take, but there are Jeff fans that look at the team and say, wow, We have one of the best defenses in the NFL. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. We have two running backs that are really good. Brees Hall coming back off that ACL with electric. You have Dalvin Cook in the fold. Garrett Wilson can go and make plays. If the quarterback can just be competent, 20th, 25th in the league, that maybe there is an avenue and a blueprint for the Jets to go and win nine or ten games. And that's kind of where I stand with them, Brian. Look, I picked them at the beginning of the year to make the playoffs. I looked at the AFC and it was really hard. I mean, you're leaving really, really good teams out of the playoff picture when you go through and try to find seven. I thought the Jets would be one of those seven, but I said, all right, transition with Rodgers, tough schedule, a lot of things working against them. Well, they won against Buffalo in week one. Maybe Buffalo is not as good as they've been in the last three years. We'll have to wait and see on that. But I do think the best case scenario for the Jets moving forward this year is that they go win nine or 10 games. And they find their way into the playoffs. And if they do, Robert Sala should be coach of the year. Simple as that.
0: Yeah. I, I'm not a big Sala guy, and I soured even more on him after I watched Hard Knocks. I thought he was incredibly unimpressive. He wasn't as bad as the defensive coordinator. That guy just sounded like an idiot when he was mocking do your job. Like He, th- he doesn't think that's a good expression. Well, I mean, it it kind of worked for 20 years. Like <laughs> They, they kind of won six Super Bowls, man. So I don't know what you're talking about. but. I'm just surprised that they're not being more proactive with the quarterback, JJ. Like, you think about that situation, you need a caretaker, somebody that's not going to screw it up. If anybody in the NFL was going to screw it up, it would be Zach Wilson. This guy turns the ball over left and right. Like, I, I I don't understand why they wouldn't be calling teams about, like, the Jacoby Brissettes of the world, those type of players that are just going to be like, okay, I'll run the offense, I'll take care of it. Like, Zach Wilson, that Matt Milano interception was horrible. I mean, I, I just, I don't know how you go in— we know last year, like, the, de- the defensive guys are not happy with this guy. I, I don't know how you do it.
2: See, so you're not wrong about that. Look, Zach Wilson stinks. I'm not a believer. I-, I don't think he's it. However, the Jets, not me, the Jets, drafted him with the second overall pick a couple of years ago. They kept him around when in reality, Brian, they could have had a totally different backup behind Great point. Aaron Rodgers this year. They could, could have, have Andy kept Dalton. Mike White. You know what I mean? So they yeah. decided in the offseason, we're going to have this mentorship, this sort of bond between Zach Wilson's idol, and he's going to learn from Aaron Rodgers, and he's going to absorb and kind of see all the things that Aaron Rodgers is doing. So the way I see it, for better or worse, dude, they're pot committed. They're pot committed. Look, they could <laughs> go and go and go bring in a quarterback, but they are trying to say to themselves, we can salvage Zach Wilson. okay. Well, now, let's see it. Let's see if Zach Wilson, with the tutelage of Aaron Rodgers, with this good running game, with this great defense, make a break time. Because I don't want to hear these dopey narratives that were out there. And, Brian, I live in New York City, as you know. I hear a lot of stuff. There were people around the Jets trying to make this argument that in, like, two or three years after Aaron Rodgers retires, oh, Zach is going to take the mantle back. And Zach is going (laughs) to be the core. Like, Like, dude, what are we doing with this nonsense? So... For me, listen, <laughs> if that's the way you feel, then let him be the quarterback, sink or swim. Go get an able body. I, I have no problem with that. But my counter to, like, the Brissettes or the McCoys or, like, it's one thing if they had money and it's like, oh, Matthew Stafford's available. Super Bowl winning quarterback. It's one thing if, oh, all of a sudden Kirk Cousins, say what you want about his playoff tenure, is available. They're upper yeah. echelon quarterbacks. You know what I mean? I don't think the Jets' ceiling changes too much with a guy like Jacoby Brissett. You know what I mean? Like, you want to tell me their chances with, to make yeah. the playoffs are increased? Okay, they're not doing anything with either quarterback. Is that is that yeah. fair to say? Like, can well, the Jets, I agree. whoever it is, win the AFC or go to the Super Bowl? They can't.
0: I agree maybe with the ceiling take, but the floor— Is a lot lower with Zach Wilson because he's gonna throw it to the other team a lot. I mean, that's the one thing I would say is the floor gets really low with Zach Wilson. But hey, so I want to get to your Dolphins because most impressive performances for me from week one, the Niners and the Cowboys were the most impressive because they were good on both sides of the ball. But then I put the Dolphins in the next category because the offense was just stupid. And we saw some new wrinkles in that Mike McDaniel offense and I was actually watching Ben Solek's play sheet YouTube thing, and he basically, last year, Tua was one for six in the middle of the field against the Chargers. This year, he's seven of 11. And basically, Mike McDaniel like switched up where he was lining Tyreek Hill. So instead of having him jet motion from the other side of the field, he had him on the same side, so he'd get a running start. So he basically, in one offseason, solved this issue, because there was sort of this perception, I know we talked about it before the season, you thought a lot of it had to do with of course, the Tua injury and he wasn't the same guy, but it felt like some teams were at least figuring out what their scheme was, so to speak. But he made an adjustment in week one and they looked better than they looked, I would argue, at any point last season.
2: It was a ton of fun to watch. Listen, it's like a track team. The entire Miami <laughs> Dolphin offense is like a freaking track team. I wish my track team in high school was that good. I mean, with Tyreek Hill, who's like the fastest dude I've ever seen play football. He's amazing. Jalen Waddle is super fast, and you can't lose sight of him and his big playmaking ability. They right. go and bring in Berrios from the Jets. Barrett, he's going to be such an under-the-radar pickup for that offense because of former what he provides in the slot. Uh, former Pat, former Jets. So you know he's going to make a play against each of them. That's a guarantee. That's the way it usually works with these division guys. Um, and the key to me is keeping Tua upright and keeping him on the field. They didn't have Teron Armstead, who is hands down their best offensive lineman. And going into the matchup, I'm like, geez, I like Miami. I think it's a good revenge spot for them. But how is the offensive line going to hold up against Bosa? How is it going to hold up against Khalil Mack and uh, a Charger team that got after Tua a little bit last year? The offensive line was phenomenal. I mean, they didn't touch Tua basically for four quarters. And listen, he won him the game. I mean, that third down throw, when you're backed up, down four, Pressure in your face, stepping up, and dropping that ball 50 yards down the field, That that's not a wide-open receiver. That's a dime. And I thought the throw on third down, I mean, that is a— Dude, that's an insanely tight window to be dropping a ball, corner of the end zone, right in a Tyree kill. Uh, listen, I think they're going to score a ton of points, and they're going to be so much fun to watch. It's the million-dollar question, though. I know it's talked about ad nauseum. I'm sick and tired of it. I'm sure Mike McDaniel's sick and tired of it. Can they keep number one, number 10, and number 17 on the field? If they can, their offense is going to be a ton of fun all year.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. Health, obviously, the biggest concern, especially, as you mentioned, with the quarterback in general. And just looking at this matchup with the Patriots, I mean, it really does feel like, and not just the Patriots, any team, you're going to have to win with your defensive line. I mean, I was looking through two of his numbers against the Blitz Sunday. 114.6 114.6 rating was fifth in the NFL, 9.2 yards per attempt was third. You go back to last season against the Blitz, 9.6 yards per attempt was first, 116-point rating was second. Because you can't really Blitz them because then you're sacrificing guys on the back end when you're trying to, to your point, cover these Olympic sprinters and Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle. So it really does feel like either you have to do something like the Chargers did last year where they took away the middle of the field and they kind of, confused Tua in that offense, or you have to just beat them straight up with your personnel. And this Patriots defense is really good. I don't know if they can just beat up on the Dolphins from a personnel perspective. I think it's going to have to be a combination of the two. And the one thing I will say from a Patriots angle in this, Bill had Jalen Hurts confused. Bill had the Eagles defense confused basically for the entirety of the game. So if there's any hope for the Patriots, it's that Bill can come up with something and JJ, they do have the defensive players now. Like, that team, the pass rush is deeper than... I can't... Quite frankly, I, can, I can't I can remember it being this deep. Like, they were great in the early 2000s when they had the Willie McGinnises of the world, etc. Vince Wilfork in the middle there. But they are deep, man. The rookie, Keon White, was really good last week. He was... He beat Lane Johnson a bunch during that game. So that's the one thing. A combination of the defensive line, the pass rush, and Bill dials up something to confuse Tua and Mike McDaniel. But... Mike McDaniel seems like one of the best offensive minds in the NFL right now.
2: Yeah, and New England, always a tough place to play. We all know that. Number two, I don't love the spot for the Dolphins from this standpoint. They just played a West Coast game. They Hmm. played an emotionally charged game. And I know they're getting ready for Sunday night football. But now you come back to Miami. uh, You're flying back to the East Coast. You got to go and play a division rival on the road. You got two or three division rivals on the road coming up. Dolphins have New England in week two. Then they have a game I'm sure they have circled on their calendar because they are the Buffalo Bills. They should have beat them twice in that building last year. Once in the snow in December. The other game, I can't believe I'm saying this, but yes, they should have won in January with Skylar Thompson playing quarterback. So I'm sure that's like focus of mind for the Miami Dolphins. So it's weird saying a division game could be a little bit of a trap game, but I do kind of get that Mm. sense. And I do kind of get that feel. One thing I'll say about Tua though, he has solved the riddle of Bill Belichick because if you look now, again, it's a small sample size. You don't want to get nuts. It's not like it's 20 games. Tua as a starting quarterback has never lost to Bill Belichick. Remember Patriots beat the dolphins last year. That was Teddy Bridgewater, a quarterback. uh, And then Skylar Thompson, What else is new? The Dolphins had 10 Zillion games last year with three quarterbacks. And then in 2020, the first game of the year, remember that was Ryan Fitzpatrick, the Cam Newton year. So Tua won in 2020. He won the two matchups in 21 and he beat the Patriots last year in 2022. So he does have that going for him. It
0: is crazy to think back to that year in 2020 when basically they were bringing in Ryan Fitzpatrick for relief of Tua to try to win those games at the end. Like how far he's come as a player. It was
2: football. It was crazy. You know, you think about it, Brian, what that prior coaching staff did. And I like Brian Forrest. Let me make that clear. I like Brian. I think he's a terrific guy. I think he's a terrific defensive mind. And his teams had some semblance of success. It's not like they were 5-12 and teams. It's not like he was Matt Patricia coaching an NFL team. (laughs) What they did with the offense. Now, I don't know how much of this is pro Mike McDaniel or it's anti. But it was malpractice the way they handled that young quarterback. Not practice. They didn't trust him to throw the ball. They didn't build up his confidence. They didn't coach him up properly. And it's eye-opening because Mike McDaniel came in, snapped the finger. Now, they added, they added Tyree Kill. I understand that. That's that's a huge deal. But the 2021 Dolphins had Jaylen Waddle. They were not doing the sort of things they're doing now in Mike McDaniel's offense that they were doing in 2021. Basically, Jaylen Waddle was a possession receiver. Can you imagine that? His speed, yeah. his talent, and they basically had him as a possession receiver, getting seven and eight yards uh, a reception. Unacceptable coaching, and it just goes to show you. And give our guy Sarudi was all over this because when the Dolphins hired McDaniel, I'm like, seems fun. I'm intrigued. Is he ready to be a coach? It's like you're gonna like this guy. I I can't get enough. I mean, Barry, he is. <laughs> I, I want to hang with Mike McDaniel. I want to I don't I don't even vape. I want to rip the vape with Mike McDaniel. He seems fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. And to Mike McDaniel's credit, like the Tyreek Hill thing, he it's amazing to me. And I think I've said this before on the pod or somewhere else. He has been better with the Dolphins than he was with Andy Reid and, the, and Pat Mahomes. Like, that's that's incredible. Like, I thought, whoa, they're giving up a lot for Tyree Kill. If the Chiefs are getting rid of him, do they know what they're doing? I, I just don't know about this. And he's actually been better with the Dolphins. And look, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, right? So, I mean, it's not like at this point, I mean, they, they probably wish they could have him after what we saw in the first game that the Chiefs played this season. But man, I mean, it's amazing what they've done with him. So on the other side of the ball, JJ, this Patriots team, they did not run the ball successfully in that game on Sunday. Part of that was the score. I mean, right away, you're down 16 to nothing. But that Dolphins defense, that was the worst rush defense in the NFL last week. I mean, it was horrific. The numbers that you saw. I'll
2: I'll jump right in. Deplorable. That's what it was. It was (laughs) as bad as can be to the point where the Chargers, and it just goes to show you what a loser Brandon Staley is. I mean, my goodness. I'd be screaming at my offensive coordinator You have third and one. You'll get nine and ten yards of carry and you're dropping back? I mean, what in God's name are you doing? That team will never win anything. They're a bunch of losers. They're a bunch of frauds. I'm so sick and tired of all these nerds talking up the Chargers every single year. They are losers. Let's acknowledge that. But yes, to get off or get back on the beaten path because I had a little diatribe there. I wanted. Is this to like
0: a Herbert it. Tua thing? Is this why you hate the Chargers no, so much? No, no, no. i no
2: because I've, oh. no, I've I've lost money on the Chargers and it pisses me off to oh. be honest with you. So it's it, it might be a little personal. I'm not gonna lie. I think st- Listen, I do think Herbert's a little overrated for what it's worth. I mean, the guy the guy yucked up a 27 point lead in the playoffs. Yeah. And for what it's worth, the game and it's one game. We don't want to get nuts. That intentional grounding was the arguably outside of the two play the biggest play in the game, and it was completely on the quarterback. Like, you don't need to throw to nobody there in that spot and put your team, when they only need a field goal, in a compromised position. Listen, Herbert's super talented. He'd be a great quarterback for a lot of teams. But the idea that he is canonized Barrett the way that he is bothers me a little bit. He's, let me tell you this. I know the nerds aren't going to like to hear this. He wouldn't sniff Joe Burrow's jock, as far as I'm concerned. They're not even close. Did well, not Bur- even close.
0: Burrow's 3-0 and against Mahomes, or it's 3-0 exactly. against Mahomes, and then the, w- the one game he lost to bring it to 3-1, and he almost won. He almost, he exactly. should have won that game last year.
2: He should have. Uh, I'm sorry that I got off the beaten path here with the Dolphin uh, run defense, but you know, that's what happens when I'm chatting with my fellow friend. I haven't seen you <laughs> in a few weeks. Um, and at least we're not talking about Yankees, Red Sox. Look, the Dolphin run defense was deplorable. If I'm New England, I am saying from the get-go in this game, immediately, right out of the gate, and it counters what Miami is looking to do from their speed and, you know, Tyreek and Waddle and all those guys. I'm pounding Stevenson. I'm pounding Elliott. And I'm going to say, until you show me you can stop it, this is how I'm attacking. And I'm taking the ball out of Mac Jones' hands until I get, you know, you pick your spots. You run, run, run. Right. run. It's going to open things up in the passing game for sure. And I know he had a good game last week, but the way they should be looking to attack is run, run, run.
0: Well, and I think, too, to your point, when you look at the Patriots, that's what they want to do. They want to run the football. The problem was last week, unfortunately, they just got off schedule, and then they didn't really have the ability to run the ball. And it sort of took that club out of the bag for Bill O'Brien. Now, to their credit, they were able to come back in the game with Mac Jones passing the football. But the one other note, and I was talking about this earlier, Ramondre Stevenson... If you go back to last year, every time he didn't have a good game, the next game he went nuts. Like, he just goes nuts after he doesn't have a good game. And in fairness to him, last week he was sick. Like, he had a stomach bug. He wasn't practicing for the past, the last couple of days of the week, so he may have been dealing with that. And then Zeke had the costly fumble. So I think we'll see a heavy dose of Ramondre. And also— So a bet like, his that, over
2: for rushing yards is what you're telling me, Brian. Yeah. I got to lock yeah. that in now.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, and, and not to do, like, the easy football cliche, but you want to keep— Tyree Kill, Tua, and Jalen Waddle on the sideline, right? And that's sort of a way to do it. And the other component to that is they didn't really have a play-action pass game last week, just eight attempts for Mac, because of the fact that, well, it's not really worth using play-action when the Eagles know you have to throw the football. I would expect more of that because I don't see this defensive front from the Dolphins, even though the Patriots, their offensive line continues to be a question mark. I don't see them putting the pressure on Mack the way that the Eagles were able to. Now, credit Mack, he was able to get the ball out quickly. I credit Bill O'Brien more for that from a scheme perspective. But I think they could, if they get going early on, we'll see a heavy dose of play action later on in the game. And the other thing with that Dolphins situation in terms of their defensive backfield, with no Jalen Ramsey, I mean, those corners are bad last week. When you look at Howard and when you look at Eli Apple, I mean, what's going on here, man? He's
2: your third third corner. Listen, um, Xavier Howard, Looked like he lost a step last year. I mean, that's a guy who was one of the premier corners in the league. He made the Pro Bowl and basically said at the end of last year, I didn't deserve to make the Pro Bowl. Well, you, you're right about that. You didn't deserve to make the Pro Bowl. You got, you got there by name and, and reputation only. And I love Xavier Howard. He's one of my favorite Dolphins over the last 15 years. But they went after him last week. Uh, and he had two or three pass interferences. Um, this kid, Kuhu, second-year player, is underrated. He's their second-best corner. He had a sack on Herbert. Um, He had a couple of interceptions at the end of the year. But you know who I think is going to have a factor in this game, Brian? And it bothers me because he's a former Miami Dolphin. I ain't get sick he's scoring a touchdown in this game. I know Hunter Henry was the big star in week one. And listen, I think Hunter Henry is TE number one. Like, I, I think Mac Jones and Hunter Henry have that rapport, and you know that, and your audience knows that a lot more than me. But I do think in these revenge spots, I look for guys maybe to get the ball a little bit more. Hey, Mike McDaniel, you forgot about Kosicki last year. Well, because they had Tyree Kill and they had Jim Waddle and they had most of they're, they're better options. But I, I can see O'Brien, a little Penn State to Penn State connection, yeah. making sure the Jersey boy. And he is a uh, Jersey boy. We like Jersey boys, even though I'm a New Yorker. But, you know. He's a big uh, LBI guy. He's always hanging out down the establishments uh, down there. I-, I will be wagering on Gasecki to go and score a touchdown on Sunday night.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting because one thing we know about Bill O'Brien, he loves tight ends. He wants to play with two tight ends on the field now. Unfortunately for Gaseki, he got hurt during training camp, so he got a little bit of a slow start, but he got involved a little bit in that game, had one big catch. But yeah, Hunter Henry was outstanding in that game. So yeah, hopefully they involve the tight ends. The other guy that was great in that game was Kendrick Bourne. Which Kendrick Bourne is, it's crazy to say this, but he is their best receiver. He is. And like they extend Devontae Parker, who of course didn't play in the opener. Surprise, surprise. This stunning. guy's always hurt. I was
2: going to say, stunning Devontae Parker <laughs> missing time. Where where have I seen that before?
0: Yeah, well, and it's costly too because you get this rookie out there in Kayshawn Booty who can't get the second foot down. He thinks he's still playing at LSU, and Parker should be the guy out there as the ex receiver, and he's just not available. It just. It's unfortunate that like they they have so much banking on Devontae Parker, which I'll never understand, and I've talked about this on multiple occasions, I'll never understand the infatuation with that guy. He's been last in separation over the past three years, and they love him. For some reason, they hated Kendrick Bourne last year, and they loved Devontae Parker. I'll never understand it, because Bourne is the far superior player, but... So, JJ, you're feel, you're worried, I feel like, as a Dolphins fan right now, based on the yeah, spot, I, the I travel. Yeah, I would say so.
2: I, I, it's not a given. Uh, I, and I don't, I don't love the fact that this is a Sunday night game. And, and I've been around the block, Brian. You have, too. Uh, I hate the bailout special Sunday night game. And, you know, believe it or not, and I know we're not doing all betting stuff here, but it does encompass a lot of what I do, as you mentioned at the start of the show. I actually thought this would be a very lopsided Betting split. I figured everybody and their mother would be betting the Dolphins this week. They had the big win. People aren't as high on New England as they've been in years past. It just goes to show you people sometimes blindly bet the Patriots and blindly are going to take the home dog. It's closer to a 60-40 split. Last look. Line has moved to three. This will not be an easy game. I think this will be a very tight game. I got the Dolphins 24-17. Close. Close. Very close. I'll be sweating this one out the entire night. I am not, but I am not overly confident in this game. If you're wondering, I'm not.
0: Okay. I'm going to give my pick in a second here, but I have a feeling that it's going to be similar to yours, but maybe a different team winning. Not to spoil my That's pick fair. completely. No, listen, but- I'm not,
2: let's put it this way. I'm not going to be stunned if the Patriots win this game. Not in the least. Like, this is not one of those games where it's going to be like, holy smokes, the Patriots just beat the Dolphins. I mean, listen. It's a competitive, spirited AFC. That's that's kind of par for the course. And these are the sort of games, Brian, let's be real. If the Patriots are going to be in playoff contention, got to beat a couple of teams like this. Yeah. That's, they have that's all there is to it. You have to.
0: Yeah, they look at the schedule and they caught a couple of breaks now, right? Because the Aaron Rodgers situation with the Jets and the Jets played them tough last year, even though Zach Wilson was the quarterback. So that those are going to be difficult games for the Patriots, even though Aaron Rodgers isn't there. Also... The Bills are vulnerable, man. The, the Bills do not look like this juggernaut, this wagon that they've been for the past couple years. I mean, what
2: years. the hell was Josh Allen doing? Was he shaving points on Monday? I mean, the fact that <laughs> it's he, a was fair question. The worst, he was the worst. It's a fair question. Brian, with Zach Wilson playing for four quarters, Josh Allen was the worst quarterback on a field Monday night. I mean, the decisions he was yeah. making, they were inexcusable. What and, was the and, jump?
0: Know, well, he tried to leap a defender seven yards away from the first down.
2: And you have to wonder how much does he miss Brian Dable not being there day in and day out? I yeah. wonder. I wonder. I think there's something to that. I mean, you saw what the what a difference Brian Dable made in one year with the Giants. So the Giants have some uh, issues Ooh. of their own. They got to clean up after what I saw on Sunday night. But you, you feel like, you know, Dable and that sort of accountability and the way he kind of nurtured and developed Allen – I don't know if you're getting the same deal with Ken Dorsey. I don't know.
0: No, I think they're two, they're buddies. That's like part of the reason they kept Ken Dorsey on the staff. Like him and Josh Allen are friends, you know? Yeah, so Allen I th- might
2: need a kick in the ass. He, he yeah. might need a kick in the ass. That team, there's something missing with that team, you know? And and I was dumb enough to pick them to go to the Super Bowl, by the way, and we'll see if that ends up being a good pick or a bad pick. But it, it feels like there is, and they have talent, obviously. They have a really good defense. They have a special talented quarterback but don't you get the sense watching him the last like year and a half that something is lacking from the bills
0: yeah well uh, you had the whole digs allen thing last year during the playoff game against the Bengals. he turns the ball over like crazy nobody turns the ball over more than him and the whole conversation in the offseason was dak prescott and his interceptions josh allen had more total turnovers than him last year and nobody talks about the allen situation and then the other component is, it's just weird when your defensive coordinator decides he doesn't want to coach anymore. That's a weird situation that Leslie Frazier just said, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to take a year off. And Sean McDermott's now taking that over. And, and he's a
2: well-respected coach, Leslie Frazier. Say what you yeah. want about his defense last year. You won't find anybody in the NFL who's got a bad word to say about that guy. Not a soul.
0: Yeah. No, I'm with you, man. There is something off of that team. We did a pod. In AFC East preview, you and I did a couple of weeks ago, and we did it on our FanDuel TV show too, the local angle. And we had the question of, hey, will the Bills, will the trend continue that they went from six and zero to five and one to four and two in the division, three and three? Will they finish three and three in the division this year? Well, they already lost one, and that was with Zach Wilson. So you got to play two against the Patriots and Josh Allen has had the Patriots number, but the Patriots have never been this good defensively since Josh Allen's been there. You got to play Miami twice too. Like they could easily lose those three games. And I just think that this is heading in the wrong direction for the bills, right? I think that they had their chance to win a Super Bowl. I don't think they're going to win one. Like I, with this group, I think something is going to have to change. Hey JJ, before I let you go, since we're talking gambling here, I want to get your take on this. Cause I like a lot of favorites this week. So the okay. Niners I've, I feel like there's an overreaction to the Rams because, first of all, it's eight points right now. And I know it's in L.A., but that doesn't really mean anything. Shanahan owns McVay. The only time that McV- McVay beat him in the playoffs, which is obviously a huge game because it, then he goes on and wins this thing called the Super Bowl. But Shanahan has this number. I, the Niners, like I was saying earlier to you, I think that they were, them and the Cowboys, the two most impressive teams. I think they're going to cover those. That eight points, like these receivers that were doing things for the Rams last week, unproven guys, I don't see them having the same success against San Francisco. So I actually think San Francisco covers it. I know it's a big number, but I feel like they're the best team, them and the Cowboys, the best team in the league. How do you feel about well, that eight?
2: I'm with eight? you. Listen, San Francisco is my pick beginning of the year to win the Super Bowl. I love their roster. I love their talent. Both sides of the ball, across the board. Purdy's got spunk. He's fun to watch. Kicked ass last week. Um, The only thing that would scare me the only thing, Brian, there were a couple of games this week. Buffalo, Vegas is one of them. Dallas and the Jets is another. The game you just referenced would be the third, where you were going to have Joe Schmo walking up to the ticket window saying, give me Dallas, give me Buffalo, and give me the Niners. And you know what that means. One of those three is <laughs> yeah. probably going to screw you. So I'm just giving you a little background on that. I don't know which one it's going to be yet. I think your logic is fair. I'm not picking the Rams. I think the Rams got their win on the road. Now yeah. they're back at home. The Niners are just too good. Um, I-, I know it's the second road game in a week, but they're back on the West Coast. I think Niners by double digits. So I'm not talking you out of that one.
0: All right. The two other ones. The Giants lose, but now they get Arizona. That's at six right now. And the Cowboys-Jets, it's a big number, nine and a half. But, of course, the big story there is no Aaron Rodgers. And Zach Wilson going up against either the best or the second-best defense in the NFL, depending how you rank the Cowboys and the 49ers. So I actually like the Giants to cover the six, and I like the Cowboys to cover the nine and a half as well.
2: All right, I'm with you on the Giants, and I'll say this about the Giants. Not that your audience cares, but I'll tell you anyway. If the Giants lose to the Arizona Cardinals this week, they're in for a rotten season. I know it's week two. I know people are going to say, oh, JJ, you're being dramatic. You're overreacting. No, I'm not. I'm not overreacting. Their schedule is much more challenging than it was last year. They're in a division that has the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. If they have to lose 40 to nothing to the Dallas Cowboys on national television, cannot go and beat Josh Dobbs and the Arizona Cardinals, pack it in. Good night, the lights, you're not doing anything of substance this year. Yeah, I'm going to have to do six more, 16 more weeks of dissecting the Giants, but how do you take the team seriously if they can't go and beat Arizona? So I, I my knockout pick, full disclosure, Brian, will be the New York Giants this week because I think you're not going to have a better spot to use them, and I don't think it's a great week for knockout picks to begin with. I endorse that pick. I do not endorse the Jet pick. I don't, and I'll tell you why. I don't trust Dallas's offense. To mm. weigh that big a number... I don't trust Dallas's offense to make enough plays against the Jets. Now, I think your logic is going to be Zach Wilson's going to give you a couple. And yep. maybe you have a couple of short fields. And you win a turnover battle. And you go and cover and win by double digits. Plus, you throw in the fact that you're dealing with a short week. I understand that. Um, I just don't love the idea of a good defense. A team that's got a major chip on their shoulder. Jets going to have a chip on their shoulder, I think, the rest of the year. Oh, People think we stink. People think we have no chance. Like, I think they can use that potentially as a rallying cry. Maybe they did in the second half against Buffalo for all I know. I would stay away from that one.
0: Okay. All right. So you like two of the three. What two was that thing? That's pretty good. What was that? Was It's Salah going to give that. What was the speech he gave on hard knocks about? Like, was it like an Eagle or a Hawk or something? A commander?
2: Are you? Oh, Bizarre. Bizarre. I mean, listen, everybody I talk to says that Robert Sala is like the nicest guy in the world. I've never met him. So I've never had an interaction with Robert Sala. I have no relationship with Robert Sala. Not good, not bad. I have no, I have no relationship. Everyone I talk to says, you'd love the guy if you met him. So if he has that way of being able to connect with his players, great. Hard Knox I thought, was incredibly tough to take. So I'm right there with you.
0: Yeah, it's a bad look for him. And it was basically... In, it was uh, basically an Aaron Rodgers infomercial. Not as bad as the infomercial for Urban Meyer. Did you see that, the, the Netflix thing? Oh, my God. Like, they just was completely— Was
2: this the Florida—I heard it was yeah. a total waste of time. Swamp Kings, yeah.
0: Don't watch it, man. That's, they basically, like, they propped this guy up like he's some sort of hero, and his team was a complete dumpster fire in terms of what they were doing off the field. Well, that's like, what people
2: said. They're like, you, you have a documentary on Florida, and you don't talk about Aaron Hernandez and the Pounceys? Like, what, what, what are we doing here?
0: They mentioned Aaron Hernandez's name once. That's it. And Tim, Te- Tim Tebow talked about it for like literally five, five seconds. That's it. That's they didn't talk about Aaron Hernandez at all. Yeah, it was it, it was not a well done documentary. All right. That is That's John Justremsky from New York, New York, part of the Ringer podcast network. And make sure to tune in to the Ringer Wise Guys on FanDuel TV. It airs Sundays at 11 a.m. So just like JJ gave me some advice there. He'll give you some advice on Sunday if you tune in. JJ, thanks so much for the time and we really appreciate it.
2: Brian, I appreciate it as well. Uh, hopefully, I have some winners coming up. And uh, I hope that your pick, I hope you have a great weekend. I actually hope you go 3-0 and with the other picture you gave me. I hope your pick on <laughs> Dolphins, Patriots, blows up in flames. That's that. I leave you with that parting thought.
0: <laughs> Fair enough, man. All right, great stuff there from my buddy John Jastrzemski. What a crazy, crazy <laughs> Thursday we have as Heim Bloom is no longer running the Red Sox organization. Man. Did not expect that one to come today. I did expect things were trending in that direction. I did not expect the news to be coming down today that Hein Bloom was no longer going to be running the Red Sox organization. But before we go, I do want to get my pick. I kind of alluded to this with JJ. I like the Patriots, and I like them on the money line. I think this is a huge game for the Pats. You can get them on the money line right now at FanDuel at plus one twenty eight. So I like the Patriots to win this game. Then you have a real opportunity to get to two and one playing a Jets team with Zach Wilson as their quarterback. In week three, I feel like the Dolphins, they're a really good team. I think Bill's gonna have something for Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle. So I like the Patriots to win this one. And then I'll give you this too: the same-game parlay, or I should say just the four-game parlay. This is for plus six eleven. The Niners to cover the eight at the Rams, and historically the 49ers, and we talked about this with JJ. Shanahan's really good against McVay, but basically I took the bets I was talking about with JJ, put it into a parlay. So, Niners cover the eight and a half against the Rams, Giants cover the six at the Cardinals, and the Cowboys cover the nine and a half against the Jets. That's for plus 611. JJ was a little bit concerned about the Cowboys covering that big number against the Jets. I like it. So, that's plus 611. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617 396 7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org, or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts, or call one 877